Welcome to episode 354 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. On the first Friday of every month, I host a free hashtag no more bad Zoom virtual happy hour. If you haven't been in a while or never been, now is a great time to join us. Music, fellow entrepreneurs, learning, all the ingredients of a great event, plus a chance to share your wins, find people you can relate to in breakout rooms and ask questions during Q&A. All this is free and I host it on the first Friday of each month from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Join when you can and leave when you have to. Register for the Zoom link at nomorebadzoom.com. I can't wait to see you there. That's nomorebadzoom.com. I partner with speakers and in-house event teams to design inclusive, engaging, and transformative events, whether in-person or virtual. My aim is to lower their stress while helping them achieve their and their participants' event goals. Reach out if you'd like more information or to schedule a chat. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest knows clear communication profoundly impacts the success of teams, projects, and careers, and that professionals don't always find communication easy. He was a senior director and held project roles for some of the world's largest companies, where he managed teams of up to 100 people. Over the past 15 years, as a trainer and consultant, he has developed effective ways for technical professionals to communicate with business stakeholders and has applied this knowledge in multiple companies, industries, and countries. He's the author of two books, The First Minute and Effective Emails, and numerous business articles. He helps his clients improve their daily communication through team and individual training. Please join me in welcoming Chris Fenning. Chris, welcome. Hi. Thank you, Robbie, for having me on. I'm very excited to be having this conversation with you. And by the power of the internet, you are joining us from the Alps of Nether- the Netherlands, which is yeah. a fantastic thing. You and I have gotten to know each other over many years. Originally connected through Dory Clark's Recognized Expert Community, which is awesome. So shout out yeah. to Dory. Uh, you, as you heard, uh, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So I can ask this, answer the second part first, which is when did I realize I had the skills to lead? And it's a two-part answer. I, uh, one of them is self-aware and one of them is self-delusional. The self-delusional part was I believed I always had the skills to leave, lead and the self-aware part was I realized way after I actually needed them. 
So understanding truly what leadership meant for me and the situations and the teams I was in uh, occurred sort of in the moment when I was already in leadership positions. So, but I'd been deluding myself for quite a few years before that. In so terms what, of what it means, yeah, oh, it, it go, mean? go well, it's, I struggled with this because there are so many possible definitions. And then I realized you're asking, what does it mean to me? Which makes it much easier to answer. And I want to start by saying what it's not for me. It's not taking charge. It's not dictating. It's not focusing just on the output. And it's definitely not doing the work for the team because you can do it faster or better. That's the, the sort of the antithesis of leadership. What I eventually came to truly understand is the leadership qualities in the people I admired and respected the most was that they, they opened doors, they supported, they were steady and solid in the times of least certainty. So when everything was going badly, the best leaders provided stability, clarity, and support, and then nurturing the team and finally opening the doors so that the team can individually can move on to whatever their career happens to be, or supporting them staying in the same place because not everyone is trying to climb the ladder. So that's, those were the qualities that I really admired in the leaders that, that I respected and the leaders that I was gutted when they moved on on their own careers as well. Right, right, because they were there opening doors for you and encouraging you and providing that stability and support. So yeah, fantastic definition. I'm glad you had opportunities to to work with people who have that kind of leadership style. And I, I was also laughing as you were saying, uh, I always thought I could lead until you had this moment of realization, like, wait a second. I think <laughs> yeah. I actually need a little more training in this area. I want to wind the clock back a bit to who Chris was on the playground in grammar school when you were just starting to grow up. Like, did you organize friends to like, do things in the playground? Did you sit back and watch what was going on? Did teachers see in you lots of potential? Did you run for, you know, office for a club or for the student government? Like, I like what kind of kid were you growing up? Uh, um, not a very nice one. If we'd known each other, then we wouldn't be friends now. Um, I, <laughs> I believed I was the king of the world and better than everyone at pretty much everything. So the, the, outcome of that was I spent a lot of time by myself. And looking back, kids can be cruel, but I certainly deserved some of, of what I got. So I absolutely felt that I was good to, to the point that when I moved to a new school, I'd already done some of the, the history topics that were being covered. And one of the big parts of English history is the Battle of Hastings. That's when the, the French came over and took over England on that particular occasion. We sort of swapped royal families a few times through the years. But Battle of Hastings, big, big battle, very important. And I'd studied it and knew it. And of course, I was constantly sticking my hand up in class and saying, here's what happens next, what happens next. And the teacher said, fine, you teach the class. So, so of course, I did. Rather than seeing that as a moment of, no, I should shut my mouth, I, <laughs> I got up. Well, actually, they gave me, uh, I sort of got up to do it then. They said, no, 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 if we're going to do it, we'll do it properly. And they scheduled a lesson, and I ended up teaching uh, a lesson on the Battle of Hastings. Unfortunately, that only served to reinforce my own belief of just how uh, inaccurately wonderful I was and talented. And <laughs> that all continued through school. But I mellowed, I learned, I had some experiences that helped put, uh, knock a bit of sense into me. And by the time I left, I was far more in the teams um, rather than trying to take over. 
And that was really the beginning of my true learning that it's not all about me. It's, it's actually about what we're doing together as a group. Okay. Family dynamics, only child? No, have both parents. They, they split, but in an odd sort of way. So if my parents end up listening to this and watching it, which my dad might, this could be an interesting conversation to have at home. Um, I went away to boarding school and my sister stayed at home. And then at the age of around 13, my, my dad moved across the country to be with his parents as they were getting older. And my mom stayed near her parents as they were getting older. My granddad had a fall and broken an arm. Um, and so I went with my dad and my sister stayed with my mum. And it's, it sort of was described as that's the logical thing to do because one parent doesn't have both kids. It was actually the parents splitting up and not telling us. Um, so that, that was around uh, uh, 13, 14 that that, that happened. But you already and had this belief in yourself uh, that you had. I was wondering if that part of that came from like having to step up at home or you know, being given like a lot of latitude at home. I'm just, I was sort of curious about that, but it sounds like that you had this sort of like quiet split happening um, that you weren't even privy to the adult part of that conversation. And that's why yeah, you had to move and resituate yourself. Yes. Yeah. And prior to that, I'd, I'd been at boarding school from a young age. I was um, a, a gifted apparently. And so I, I scored very well on all the tests and I was bored. I was bored a lot of the time at school. So uh, in the UK, in primary school, you'd have had work set out for the day or set out for the week. And I'd have completed most of it by lunchtime on Monday. And then I was bored and I caused trouble. And so I was a troublemaker. So I ended up going, uh, getting a scholarship and it was a, a incredibly fortunate time. And my grandparents on my mother's side helped pay for um, quite, a, quite an expensive school that my family just couldn't afford. They were we, we were not wealthy in any way, shape, or form, um, far the opposite. But my mum's parents um, really helped out, and I got into a good uh, private school that then gave me opportunities and filled my time so I wasn't bored. And so that gave me a lot more opportunity than my sister had, uh, but also kept me busy and mostly kept me out of trouble. Didn't stop me being annoying or arrogant or stuck up, but it did keep me out of trouble. This is so interesting because annoying, arrogant, and stuck up are not qualities that I would associate with the person I know today. Although brilliant is the fact that you- <laughs> cover um, is holding. Yeah, the, the, your cover is holding. Well done. Um, yeah, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't have seen you in that light because um, I see you as a person who like is very smart and, and you know able to think through intricate things, but able to break them down. And we're, we'll talk more about one of those examples later um, that really kind of stuck with me. But I can see how all this early formative years, like it shapes us, right? And so for you, you it took a while. F I mean, you were you were told you were smart, you you know, and you were bored, so it was sort of pointed to you, like. But you finally got a chance to really stretch what that meant, uh, being getting a more demanding yep. schooling. Um, when you were 12, 13 years old, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there like a, a career path that you were following? <laughs> No, I didn't make a, a real decision about what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was 37, 36, 37. I, I chose, uh, so in the UK and the US, the school systems are different, but at age 14, you can start picking subjects to go with the mandatory subjects. So you have to do maths and sciences and, and so on, certain languages, but you can pick other subjects. 
So I chose theater and cooking and uh, design technology, so building stuff with my hands, because I enjoyed being in theater, I enjoyed cooking, and I enjoyed design. I just chose the things that I liked. The same for my A-levels, which I, is sort of college, just below university level, so 17, 18-year-old. I did the things that I would get the best grades at, so I did, I did maths, further maths, additional further maths, physics, and then design and building stuff, like engineering. And it got to the point where we had to apply for universities. And all the people in my year pretty much knew what they were going to do. I was like, oh, am I going to university? What, what am I going to do? What, what's on option? What are the ideas? And I'd, the, the way I made the choice wasn't really a choice. I liked aeroplanes. I'd been learning to fly with the Royal Air Force, and I was good at maths and physics. So I was like, well, that's, I suppose, flying engineering. Aerospace it is. And that's what I did. It wasn't a real choice. It was like the laziest option of just how, how do all these things fit together and I don't have to choose anything. Same, same thing, I know this answer is going on, but the same thing happened at the end of my degree. Everyone in my year had applied for jobs. And in my study group, in our final year project, there were five, six of us. Everybody had applied for jobs. Four out of the six had got a job at the same company. I hadn't applied to anywhere yet. So I just applied to the company that they'd all applied to and ended up getting in. And, <laughs> and I just didn't make any real decisions. I sort of, well, maybe they were, maybe it was luck, maybe it was a little bit informed, but I just sort of drifted through and, yeah, yeah, no real decisions. No. <laughs> it's interesting that, you know, you ended up making decent, you, you landed in decent enough places without having like a very clear line. And also, and that's still true for a lot of people even today. Like, you know, what 20-year-old really knows what they want to do, right? Like, that's probably not that out of the question. But it sounds like you weren't striving at that point in life to be particularly good at, at a thing. You were going at things that, were, that you enjoyed doing or you were already pretty good at. Like, maths, it made sense to you. So you went with it. Um, how long did you stay in this company and what kind of role did you have? Uh, I was in that company for two years and one day, and I was in a graduate scheme. And the graduate scheme was amazing. You got to spend four to six months in different jobs around the country and, and around the company. And on the first day, we went in, and I got my first job was in a design office working out how to put radars in fast jets. But part of the job was hands-on fixing fast jets. Like for a while, they were literally fast jets in the Royal Air Force flying around with stuff that I'd put on them. So they, the work had been checked, but there was that moment of, did I really like do this? And I accidentally scratched a helicopter with a, a screwdriver once, made a small hole in, uh, in something. That's a different story. And, but on the first day, when they were doing orientation, they showed us where they had offices. Again, I hadn't paid much attention at that point and hadn't really researched the company because I was still in the drifting along moseying along stage of my life, which isn't me anymore. And I, they had a, a location in a place called the Outer Hebrides. And the Outer Hebrides are a group of small islands off the coast of Scotland, way out remote, like two airplanes and a connecting flight with a plane that lands on a beach to get there, like way out there. And on the first day I went, can I go there please? And they said, funnily enough, we have an opportunity. And I got the most incredible five months living on these islands, doing a fantastic range of engineering work, business work. Uh, I had a really good boss, a really good leader who pushed me 
and challenged me and highlighted where I was failing and gave me these opportunities. And that was the beginning of recognizing just how great a boss can be. And I, I wouldn't, my whole career would have been different if I'd gone somewhere else in that organization. It's like the first time someone believed in you and asked more of you. In a, in a work capacity, there yeah. were others, there were others before through school who I would have been, I, I don't know, I'd have been in jail if I hadn't had some incredible people helping me through school. And I'll, can I go back to a thing you mentioned just, uh, just before, which was around when I started to sort of have direction and make the, make the best of situations. I actually started to change around the age of 15, 16. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but people who knew me later told me there was a, a very clear moment. When I was 15, I was hit by a car and um, it, was, it was quite a nasty accident. I was a pedestrian. I, I ran across a road. It was my, was my fault and I was quite badly injured. But when I'd recovered from that, I stopped drifting and started taking every single opportunity that came along. I was the only kid in my school that had not only one job, but I had three jobs. I ran my own business at school. I went from just doing the bare minimum, literally the bare minimum, to joining band, getting into the sports teams. I was the, one of the least sporty kids in school, but I made it into the, the, the second level rugby team, um, picked up other sports, started uh, doing long uh, cross-country running, and I did the canoeing, joined the scouts. I did all these things that were suddenly, I realized were available. And I packed like seven years worth of, of extracurricular activities into my last three years at that school. And I didn't know that, that that was the turning point, but the people who knew me before and after and who, who guided me and cared for me and some of the teachers were pointed out like that was the moment that, that I, my attitude shifted. Yeah, and, it's like you woke up and took some control over your own life. Yeah. And so what I did at that point was I started saying yes to every opportunity that came along. I was still passive because stuff was coming at me and I was just saying, yes, I'll do it all. I wasn't actively seeking anything. I didn't have a really clear direction, yeah. but I did, something would come along. Do you want to do this thing? Sure. Do you want to go climbing? Yes. Do you want to try kayaking? Yes. Do you want to join band? Yes. Started learning the drums. Uh, don't do that anymore, thankfully for everyone around me, <laughs> but I went through all those things. What was the business that you had at that time? I had a bike repair business. So I would uh, do stuff on my own bike and then other people there, something would be wrong with their bike at school and I would fix stuff on theirs. And, um, and it, yeah, it was good, but people, I, I didn't, didn't have a full price list. It was a, a very, um, just do it as, as it comes type business, but people were paying me to fix their bikes. And then I had a small stock of materials and I upgraded all my tools and I became known as the bike fixing guy at school. And, um, that, that just helped me with, with income because I didn't have any through my family. Mm -hmm. So everything, if I wanted to buy something, I had to get the money. And that culminated with a bunch of jobs. I, I worked on a building site. One of the teachers was having a renovations done and their, their builder ended up hiring me. And my final job at school, and some of the staff hated this, my final job at school was in the pub that the teachers went to. <laughs> And that was, it was also the pub where the end of year celebration, like when, when everyone's graduated uh, from, from high school, the big celebration, because we can all drink at 18 in the UK, was at this pub. And so instead of being, getting really drunk at the party, I was working and I was able to have conversations with all my friends and get paid for the privilege and still be 
in the party. And so it was a, it was a really great end to, uh, I, I can just picture school. the the how much uh, that might annoy the teachers who want to like unwind and not be sitting in front of a student <laughs> while they're doing it. Yeah, um, I mean, you you sound very entrepreneurial and sort of motivated because you you had to find ways to like you said get pocket money and cover some small expenses and you were willing to do that. But the drifting piece still seems like you were saying yes, but you weren't you weren't leading your life at that at that point. Um, yeah, but you were open much more open now after this accident of which sounds hard, like to recover from a, you know, being a pedestrian and being hit. Um, it's bad enough if you're in a car when you're in a car accident. So you're in that recovery mindset, something sort of resets your brain. You're like, I'm going to say yes. But now you're in this job, you're off in this uh, remote islands, the outer Hebrides. Am I saying this right? Almost outer Hebrides. Hebrides. I'm seeing it spelled out next to me, which is why it makes me it's, trying to it's guess. It's spelled Hebrides, but yeah. <laughs> so it's Hebrides, but it's Hebrides. <laughs> Hebrides. So out of Hebrides, you have this great experience with someone who's yeah. um, a, a nurturing leader manager for you. And like today I know you as this communication expert. I know you as an author and a speaker, coach, consultants. I think you're talented beyond measure, but I'm trying to see this gap between like where you were then in your early twenties, it sounds like mid twenties. Yeah. So what, what was that shift? And did you just stay employed in various roles? You said, well, what was the deal with the two years in one day? You were very specific about that. Um, what was, <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> so two years in one day, it was because the graduate scheme was two years long and if you finished it, there was, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was either a completion bonus or there was some, there was some kind of um, re recompense. I got something for being there and I uh, ended up, oh, you know what? I might, I might have misremembered that. Maybe it was more than two years in a day. No, 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 something was two years in a day. Um, because I needed to reach this milestone to, to, to get the badge and the sticker, get, get it fully signed off that I'd completed the two-year program. And in what caused me to leave was I was put in a position I wasn't ready for because I excelled in the jobs that I'd done. I was, I was given just the most incredible experiences. I worked in, a, in a, an area called warfighting experimentation where I went to Canada and chased tanks in a helicopter. Um, I got to work with the British Army um, helping train ge generals. I wasn't training the generals, but we were running like equipment and stuff that helped expanding the zone that the generals were using in their in their military training. I got to work in an area called proposition development, where this engineering company took ideas from the super smart people and turned them into small companies and spun them off and sold them. And I got a crash course from some ex-McKinsey's senior McKinsey partners in how to do that. So I got this brilliant crash course in exciting defense technology. And all of that, I, I'd excelled in those areas. And I've been given these great opportunities and great support, and it just fitted with the skill set and what I enjoyed. And I always applied myself fully to the work. I'm, I was all in whatever the job was. And that meant I got a promotion, and then a promotion, and then a promotion without the the fundamental structure and experience that I needed to be successful. And I I didn't realize how difficult that was on me until it started you know, taking its toll. I was incredibly stressed. I was 
in a position with lots of responsibility, so lots of accountability, but no, uh, no authority. And I didn't know how to deal with that. And I was working under different leaders at that time. And in the end, it was uh, my girlfriend at the time got a job in a different company. And she said, oh, there's a job in this other company that's on half the hours and twice the pay. And it was a no-brainer because I was working 60 hours a week and traveling something like 20 hours on top. I was constantly on the road. I was very, very tired. And I was offered this. I, the, the job wasn't anything I was particularly excited about, but double the money in half the hours seemed like a huge win, a huge win. So I jumped into telecoms. And very fortunately, luck and serendipity has played a big role in, in my career path, which has just gone like this. I got exposure to customer experience and testing and a good statistical background. Um, and within a couple of years there, I'd moved jobs every six months or so as various leaders said, you've got a talent for solving problems, dealing with this particular situation. So we want you to work on this special project and then that special project. And I never had a, a, a defined role or a job, which after a couple of years in that company of bouncing around, caused a bit of an um, identity crisis because I didn't know what I could apply for. I knew I was ready to get another job. They were, it was, I'd sort of grown to the limit in, my, in the one that I was in, but I didn't know what I could apply for. I, I hadn't trained as a project manager. I hadn't trained as a, I wasn't a software developer. I, wasn't, I didn't have a label or a pigeonhole. And I, I had sort of a crisis of confidence of, well, what do I do? Where do I go? And I got stuck there for about six to 12 months, at which point, uh, outside of work, my wife and I uh, moved to America and I got to reset. <laughs> so I, had, I got to this point and I was looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for. So I was just grabbing it. I was applying for all kinds of jobs and going for interviews and just trying to work out what I wanted to do. And in the process of me looking for a job, my wife uh, happened to find one for herself. And so we ended up moving to America, and that was a um, that 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 was a reset for me. All right, so it's interesting because a lot of what you're describing makes sense in the in the in the sense now that you are an entrepreneur because you have a really varied skill set. You mm -hmm. like new projects. You excel at taking complicated ideas and breaking them down. And so, like, I can see the special projects role, uh, you know, being really good, like little ad hoc groups, committees coming together that you join or organize. Um, but I also see how you have to then figure out what are the transferable skills and how do those transferable skills relate to the job market as it is currently defined. And no one knows they're looking for me as a special, like, projects person. I have to find my way in and then demonstrate um, when you came to the U.S., what year was that that you had that? That sounds like a major reset in your career. So what year is that? January 1st, 2013. All right. So a decade, a decade later. Wow, that's interesting yep. to think about. So um, and you made it back <laughs> to the U.K. Um, so and only for six months and then moved to the Netherlands. So Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so, yeah. OK, so very quick. So. Yeah, how did I mean? Did you find a role in the U.S. or did you really just ride that time out and then go back and when you moved again? I had four months of doing nothing because I had no visa, so I was um, I was at home and working on a novel, 
at the time, actually, which which I've been working on for 15 years, and maybe maybe one day I'll finish it. But I then I then chose okay, I need to I need to give myself a label or a badge or a pigeonhole, and I chose project management because that was the closest thing that used my breadth of of transferable skills and competencies. And I got to work for a small company that wanted to grow, which was what I'd been doing in a big company before, so it was a good match. And then a year later, I had the opportunity to work for what was then Anthem Insurance, which is one of the biggest health insurance companies in the States, as a project manager. And so I had this label and I got the certifications. I realized I needed certifications. So I found out what they were and I studied for a month or something. And then I went and did, did the exams. I'd got the experience, but it had never been called project management before. I'd, I'd always just been doing the, the particular mm-hmm. project or solving the problem or putting out the fire. And so I joined as a contractor and ran a few projects. And once again, they found that I could take on gnarly, complicated, ill-defined stuff. And so I ended up getting the special project within this framework of project management and rising through the ranks up to being a a director in that office with some absolutely phenomenal leaders. Um, One of whom, um, I I want to say the the one at the Kinetic was Mick O'Connor. He was my first just standout stellar boss. And at at Anthem, which is now, I think, Elephant's Health, we said Elephant's Health then. It's not Elephant's Health. It's (laughs) Elephant's or whatever it's called in the States now. Um, Melissa Biancardi was uh, the standout leader for me. She she supported us through through difficult work times, through difficult difficult personal times. She was there for me as a manager and as a as really as a friend and support through some of the most challenging moments of my life. And when she left, I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. I've never had a physical reaction to something like that happen before. I'm, I'm usually like, okay, someone's moving on. But I just, I almost doubled over. It really was a body blow when, and she was moving on for great reasons to do good stuff, but it was, oh, really felt her leaving. Is that the impetus for you to start finding a a new role or did you stick around? I stuck around. I continued in that role for a couple of years and got more and more um, high profile, complex work. And there came a point where, the work and my approach didn't gel. I got very stressed. I was dealing with merger and acquisition programs, huge merger and acquisition programs, things that that had the revenue impact of, of billions of dollars and very, very tight timeframes. Um, and the, the pressure, that was, a, that was in a leadership role where I was dealing with a mixed team of brand new project managers in their early 20s, up to people in their 70s, uh, or just about to get into sort of late 60s, early 70s, all working in this project environment, full-time employees, contractors, um, interns, on these incredibly high-profile projects, projects that were called out by name by the CEO in the Wall Street updates every quarter. Like mm. Half of the Wall Street updates, or a quarter to a half of the Wall Street updates, would be the programs that our department was was leading. Wow. And that comes with some pressure internally, and particularly when... So as an example, one, one project, our team was brought in to evaluate what would it take to deliver this particular outcome. And we said it will take, you need 13 people, nine months and this amount of money. And they said, you have four people in six months and half the money. Go. And we were working until midnight, five, six, seven nights 
a week. I think it was, my wife said it was something like 60 to 80 days where I'd done 12 to 14 hours every day. And I was, I, I'd got a one-year-old at the time. Oof. So I would work until six, I'd do dinner, bath and bed, and I'd go back to work at 7.30 or eight and work until midnight or one. And then I'd get up at six and do breakfast in the school run and then go to work and it, just a day after day after day of that. And I, that, some people thrive on that. And I thought I did, mm -hmm. but I didn't. And part of the problem was at that point, I was a, I was a senior director and my, I felt my job was to protect my team from all the storm that was happening around so that they weren't feeling that pressure so they could do their best work and not mm -hmm. be crushed by it. So in addition to my own goals and, and so on and, and family life and having a young daughter and all those sorts of things, the trying to support and shield my team was too much. And I, I broke, I ended up uh, in hospital a couple of times. Um, I lost the ability to walk for a while. I had, uh, had some quite serious health issues. I was off work for, for some time. And the reason I connected to stress is the day I gave my notice, all my symptoms went away. That's incredible. That, yeah. It, some people go, yeah, okay, whatever. But it, it literally, that phrase, you can feel like 100 pounds lighter, weight lifting off your shoulders. When I gave my notice, I swear I floated out of the office that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you were sort of compounding the stress because you were not a single guy worrying just about your own, like, you know, day to day. You were a family guy with a young child trying to be a good partner and be actually involved. And like, you're really being stretched as thin as can be. Like you're just being pulled and you're really committed to the work. So you can't slack off about the work. So, I mean, it seems yeah. like you were just, you know, stacking all these things on top of yourself. And at some point your body was like trying to tell you that this was sort of a breaking point and you were having yeah. um, some physical responses, which, I hearing that I, I totally can see this, you know, happening to you. I know again, I know you as an entrepreneur. Is that the moment you're like, I'm gonna do my own thing? Or did you go back and continue working yeah. in the corporate world? It was a it was a key moment. I carried on working in the corporate world for another 18 months. But that was the moment that thankfully I have a wonderful wife who knows me better than I know myself, <laughs> said, enough is enough. And something has to change. And we'd been talking about whether we move back to the UK to be nearer our parents and you know, child grandparent relationships are important and they're difficult to do transatlantic. And so we had this, this opportunity where I had to make a change. I absolutely had to make a change for my own well-being and just to, to, to stay alive really. And my own mental health for the sake of our family. And so we said, okay, if I'm going to make a change, let's do it when we move out of the US. And we planned, we planned a, a, some travel and we, we sort of said, okay, here's our, our timeline. We'll save X amount so that we ran all the numbers. Can I afford not to work? My wife, just her income and so on. And we said, okay, let's, let's do it. And it happened with three things at the same time. So there was my health issues. So I had to make a change. I, my best friend at the time said, this thing, this communication stuff that you're doing, you need to do more of it. 
And I'd been given an opportunity to train an entire department in my company. So this is how the transition to communications came in. I was, oh, I'd always been a good communicator. Initially, I thought talking a lot meant I was a good communicator. That's wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. There are, turns out, there are you know, techniques that one must use, not just lots of words. And I got interested in it. And then I started to um, learn. And then I started to help my team and help my individuals and then my, the team down the hall and then my department. And then I was invited to train 300 people in, in the company, but somewhere else within the company. And coming out of that, the person who'd invited me said, you should do this as a job. I was like, oh, I'd literally never considered that ever. It was a totally novel idea. And my best mate said, if you don't do this as a job, I'm going to come over and slap you every day until you try. And he pu pushed me towards creating online courses. So that got me sort of into the idea of creating content. And then the health issues on top meant, okay, something has to change. What shall I do? Well, the world, the universe is telling me I should have a crack at this. And that was the point that I said, okay, I'm going to give it a go. I will spend three years. And in those three years, I will learn, study how to be an entrepreneur, learn how to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, pick my topic and, uh, and, and try and run this business. And if I can't make it work at three years, then I'll go and get a normal job. All right. What year is it that you're making this decision? That was end of 2019. Okay. Wow. Interesting timing with the pending, you know, the pending. Oh, pandemic. oh yeah. Very my wife and I, we quit our jobs and sold our house in December of 2019 with the goal of traveling for a year. <laughs> and, that, huh. and you got grounded pretty quickly a few months yeah. in. Um, so you have this best friend and that was your best friend an entrepreneur. He was, he had, uh, he had all kinds of side gigs and still does. Um, and he's, I learned a lot from him. And one of the best things I learned from him was enthusiasm for being okay to get it wrong. I was like, great, what did I learn? Pick up and, and try something else. So it sounds like um, having that person in your immediate network, that you, you know, a lot of trust between the two of you, that was an easy thing, or it made this shift a little easier. And he could introduce you to resources and people. He was the gateway in. Oh, yes. Um, so that, you know, if you had to figure out how to do online courses. So were you doing online courses before you left your day job? I tried. I dabbled. I, I spent 100 hours to create my first one hour course and it was rubbish. It was, it was not good, but I learned a lot, particularly about how long it can take and how much I needed to learn to be good at it. But I got 20,000 students through Udemy and I think I made a buck 85. So it was great. I couldn't even buy half a coffee, but I learned a lot and I started to, um, through, through, through struggling to do it, I then said, well, how do I solve this particular problem? And I started applying my problem-solving skills to my, myself and my job. And that brought me into what is social proof, what is credibility, how do you grow a business, which led me to Dory uh, and Dory Clark's course, which is how we met. And that then began a journey of, okay, I need to learn how to do this. So I was creating courses and I was toying with the idea of a book, but I'd told myself before I quit my job, I need to learn how to be an entrepreneur because even though I'd had side businesses, I'd never really done much with them. I actually had another company in the UK for 12 years where we designed and sold uh, sporting equipment. 
and that's now uh, that's now closed. But even having done that, it was never my whole income. It was, I was never reliant on the thing that I was creating. So it was a bold move and the scariest move to give up employment. And so I said, okay, I'm going to learn for a year. And that was, and I'm still learning now. To think it would have taken a year was so naive. Um, and one of the biggest parts of it is learning from other people. You yeah. can't do this stuff from a book by yourself. So it sounds like early on, one of the things that's very uh, sort of center to who you are is you're a very hands-on, physical, hands-on tinker. You know, you know how to do a lot of things. Like you, you build things, fix things, get into that. Now you're talking about doing something that's not tinkering with your hands, but it's tinkering with taking ideas in your head and then trying to figure out how to implement that. Yeah. How, did, how was that shift for you? I've never thought about that before. I'd love to say, oh, it was easy. But, but I think I just don't remember because there was so much going on. Because I, I, I wrote this book while moving house, while moving country and learning about the job. And I think I just, I just got, well, with COVID going on as well. Um, so we didn't have a home for about 12 months. We were bouncing around between Airbnbs and things. And I think it, I just had my just get on and do it mentality. Here's a particular thing I want to learn. Here's how I go, go and find the resources, find the ones that worked for me or spoke in my, my language. And then, and then I just compartmentalized and took it one, one piece at a time. And now, it, it would have been very different if, if the world wasn't going through what it yeah, was. Yeah, I was thinking like, one, it sounds like COVID lit a deeper, even bigger fire <laughs> in your need to get this right. Um, mm. The stakes were just so much higher. And the whole world, I felt... Like looking back, there was a certain freedom in that year because nobody was looking at each other. We were all very self-focused. So if you tried a thing and it didn't work as well as you'd hoped or you'd completely fallen on your face, like no one was going to remember that or even notice it. Um, and so there was a, it was easier to just you know build and release and try things and all that. Um, you pointed a moment ago at a framed cover of your first book, uh, The First Minute, which is about um, communication. It's about you know how how to uh, how to start conversations that get results is the tagline, and you already have this focus on communication as you were entering into this world of entrepreneurship. Um, when when did that book get released, and how did you sort of formulate the topic? Because it ended up being a really big success for you. It it has been. It's more than I anticipated. I expected to write a book that I would give away as a business card. And I'm just about to hit 35,000 copies of this, of this book sold in the last three years. So I wrote it during COVID traveling. This was, it was my COVID book. Of, of so many experts wrote their COVID book because there were no, uh, no events, no keynotes, no training, everything shut down. So that was the point that a lot of people who were ex recognized experts or um, consultants and so on wrote their COVID book. They used that time. To go, I'm going to write my book now. I did the same thing in just a few hours each day because we were, you know, my wife and I were try still looking after a daughter in, <laughs> in a small Airbnb, wherever we happened to be at the time. And so I wrote it in pieces. And the reason I wrote the book is because it was for credibility and as a business card. I, what I discovered in my year of learning was that having a book helps you be an authority. So I would write a book. It's not the book I planned to write. In fact, 
every time I started writing the book that I wanted to write, which was about helping IT software developers communicate with business teams. That was my initial idea. That was my gap in the market, my niche, where my expertise was. I'd always uh, bridged the divide between technical and non-technical as a translator. That was my strength. So that's what I was going to write my book about. But every time I taught with someone one-to-one or in team meetings, and every time I sat down to write these books, I always came back to, well, you have to be able to get to the point. Because it doesn't matter how good you are on stage, how good your tone of voice is or body language or how good your storytelling is. If you can't get to the point, everything else is is irrelevant. You'll be the best narrator in the world, a real Shakespearean theatrical voice. But if you're you're waffling, it's just pleasant to listen to waffle, but it's still going to get frustrating at work. So I had to write the first minute so that I could then get to the topic that I wanted. And it turned out that the first minute was a fantastic foundation for my business. Yeah, um, I, you know, I was just actually sharing a link to your book with um, a client. Um, they were talking about efficiencies at work, and um, yeah, I thought I, I was. It was about efficiencies. Oh, it was about sorry, it was about coaching, leadership, and managing. That's what it was. It was calm. They said, "Keep calm." You'd appreciate this. Keep calm, coaching, leadership, and management skills. <laughs> no, I- <laughs> um, so uh, in the, the One Minute Manager came to my mind. So Ken Blanchard's book. And then your book came to mind. So you're in good company in my head. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have worked really hard to get nearly 250 reviews in my latest book. And you had like 500-something reviews. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, and it's been released in so many different countries and languages. And it's just well done. Yes. Um, we'll have a link in the show notes to that as well. As a link also to, we mentioned Dory Clark's uh, community and her program. We'll have a link to her recognized expert program as well. So we're, we're getting to my favorite wrap-up question. And before we dive into that, let's take a quick minute to hear a word from our sponsor. All right, here's my favorite wrap-up question. Uh, it's a year from now. And the good news is I know we're going to stay in touch because we do continue to intersect throughout the year. But say a year from now, I or you remember that we had had this conversation a year ago. And I'm going to want to ask you, hey, what are you celebrating? Like, what's been good in this past year? What will we be celebrating a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Personally, a ski trip at Christmas. Not been skiing for a very long time. I'm really looking forward to that. Professionally, getting over my fear of selling. And in a year's time, through one way or another or another or another, I will have overcome my fear of selling and found a solution that is helping grow my business. And Ooh, I'm going to announce this now. And uh, I want to be a good portion of the way towards giving a million digital books to students. A million digital books to students. What books? Your books? Communication skills books. So uh, digital copies of my own books, giving them to students, graduates, and high school to help bridge the gap, help close the gap between where students are leaving education with a certain level of communication skills and what employers need and expect and want. And there is a gap there that I'm hoping to draw in some other communications authors and experts to join me in this. And we're looking to give educational institutions and organizations that work with students 
free books and obviously the talks and things that go with them as well to help those students get prepared for a skill that is critical for whatever job they do, whatever industry. Everybody has to talk to somebody else or write to somebody else at some point in their work. I mean, I can't wait to support you in doing all of that. And I'm happy to speak with you offline about your sales question there. I've got, I've got some mindset reset uh, tricks that I can use because my background's fundraising and I thought I had no skills in sales. And it turns out if I can talk people out of giving me money just for a little bit of goodwill, um, it's a lot easier when you have something of real value yeah. to provide to them. Um, oh, so I'll take can, all the help. Thank you. We can chat about that. But this has been uh, an incredible conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, how can people find you and follow your work? They can find me at chrisfenning.com. And my social hangout is LinkedIn. That's the place that I'm at the most. So one of those two places, get in touch. And if I can help you, there's a ton of free resources on my site. And if I can help you and you've just got questions, I will chat to anybody if it helps. Fantastic. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you, Chris. Oh, thank you, Robbie. It's been wonderful to be here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 354. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.